0: Here we are. We are talking about uh, limited atonement, and I think it is better if we call it particular redemption, and we can argue that if we want to, but I think particular redemption gets at the baseline argument better, and so we're going to call it particular redemption. We started out talking about total inability on week one, and then we, week two talked about unconditional election And here's the thing. I think if we really do believe that we are dead in our sin with no personal ability or merit for salvation, and we do believe that we need a sovereign God to choose us unto life, then we have to ask the question, how exactly does he do that? So all of us, no matter where you land in your understanding of soteriology, you get to this point and you have to ask the question, okay, well then then how does it happen? If we know that we're sinners in need of a Savior, how do we go about becoming followers of Jesus, believers, those who have been redeemed? And the answer for everyone is atonement. We all agree across the board that we need some sort of atonement. And if you can hear the word in there, at one, a good way to remember what atonement is, is it means being made at one with God. So we need something that will make us one with God. But the question I think that we're really going to be asking this morning is whether Christ died so that sinners might come to him or whether he died for sinners that they would come to him. So you'll see that there is a a different word in each of those sentences, right? Are we talking about being able to come or being made savable or are we talking about being saved? And so that's kind of the the question that we're going to flesh out. So, are we savable or does it save us? That's the question. And that even saying it that way is a little is a little deceptive to our friends that don't believe like I would because the answer to both of those is yes, right? But for us, only one of those things is a yes. Okay? So we'll unpack that here in in just a bit. So, Um, what we're going to be looking at is not the power of the atonement, it's the extent. So that's why I say from my perspective, the camp that I am in, which is a Calvinistic camp, we don't like to use the word limited atonement because of the connotations of limiting the power of the atonement. So for people like me, I would say that if Christ died for sinners, that is just as powerful if it happens for all people in the world, like literally every single human, or if it happens for one person only. All right, we get to heaven and it's like, wow, it was just me. That's crazy. That's not true. But if you happen to get there, Christ's death would still be of the same substance and power, whether it's every single person or only one person. So we're not limiting the power of Christ's saving work. What we are limiting is the extent. So to whom does Christ's work apply and for whom is it effective? Right, That's why I say particular redemption is, is a better way to phrase it. So again, back to atonement. If you want like a little bit fuller of a definition, if at one is not <laughs> enough for you, it, it basically refers to removal and restoration. So a way of saying atonement is reconciliation. Okay, If you're wondering what it is or what happens in it, it means being removed from something and being reconciled to something. In this case, it's removed from the consequence of sin, the penalty of sin. It's absorbed in Christ, and because of that, you're made or reconciled at one with God. Okay. So here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 3.6. As God has appointed the elect to glory, so he has, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means to that end. So right there, all the means to that end. Is an important distinction between Calvinism and something like Arminianism. What we say is that in the atonement, everything is done, okay? So even the means to that end is what they mean there. Therefore, his chosen ones, the elect, all of them being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ and are effectually called to Christ by his Spirit working in due season." They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. And then here's the most explicit particular redemption phrase here. No others are redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, except the elect only. Here's, uh, if I'm just going to be honest with you, Particular redemption is kind of the black sheep of the five points of Calvinism, but he's your family, and so he's there, but you don't really want to acknowledge him. It is the way we kind of view particular redemption. We, we see it there, and maybe we're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, but we don't really want to engage with it because it can be somewhat embarrassing to us. Or we think, okay, this is the one that really makes people bristle, which, is, which can be true at times. But From my perspective, being a convinced Calvinist, the hardest one is actually unconditional election. Because in that one, what we are saying is that there are some who are chosen unto salvation and those who are chosen unto damnation, right? God God chooses to pass over some people. So if we believe that, to me, limited atonement is actually much easier to believe. And I, I think what we'll see if you buy into these things and see them as biblical, which, which I do, you'll see that limited atonement is actually marvelous. It, it's a wonderful doctrine. So let's look to scriptures here and make a case. Uh, one more thing. I just want to keep saying this over and over again, and I didn't say it last week. You are not a member of this church if you hold to the five points of Calvinism. And maybe several of you in your head went, amen, because I'm not, Right. What makes you a member of this church is that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have, at least in our system the way we do it here, you've sat with an elder of this church, and you have had a congregational vote to vote you into membership here. Believing the gospel and congregational vote makes you a member. And so as we go through this, if you're like, I just cannot get on board with this, that's okay. We love you, and we're so glad that you are here with us, and we count you a dear brother or sister. And so that is my word to you as we move forward. So point one, particular redemption is the means of sovereign election. So if God does sovereignly choose, he elects those, then the means by which it comes about is particular redemption. I think I said last week that sovereign election is not salvation. You 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 can't just be chosen unto salvation and all is good because God, in His Word, what He has revealed to us is He requires a sacrifice for sin. Something must happen in order for you to be reconciled. So for this sovereign election to come about, there needs to be something that happens to make it so. And we would say that it is the atonement and in particular, the particular redeeming effects of the atonement. So Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 10, we've been uh, reading this several times. It says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will.'" To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, can we just take a break? Before we try to establish what we believe here, can you just take a moment to, to take that in? <laughs> is that not amazing? All of these wonderful things. I mean, God even using the word lavished and then our name is, is really insane. But then in John chapter 10, verses 11 and then 14 and 16, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay, so as we look at this Ephesians passage here, I I think what you can see pretty clearly here is that Paul is making a direct connection between those who have been chosen unto salvation and the redemptive benefits that are received in Christ. So he talks about those who are elect, those who are predestined, and then he talks immediately after that about the things that we have received, right? These, these riches that has, have been lavished upon us. So I, I think that what he's saying is that redemption isn't made possible, it's, it's purchased. That when Christ dies for us on the cross, it's not just making something possible, it's actually performing something. And according to Paul here in Ephesians, there is a really close link or correlation between what Christ has done according to the purpose of God's will, and then all of these things that will be given to us in him. So I think there is a definitive transaction that's taking place on the cross. there's, There's not like a hope or a wish for something. Something is actually coming about. And then you see in John, so again, we're we, I think that we could really glean a lot from Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, and we could really unpack it, but I, I really want to stay as plain as we possibly can, okay? So I don't want to go too deep to wipe away the, what I think is the plain meaning of the text. And then in John, you see, here is the extent of the redemption. So he says he will die for his sheep, right? Those that he knows he has come to die for. And something important to note is the way in which he knows his sheep we're told is the way in which the father knows the son. I think that that is very, very important because that is not just some sort of general knowledge. It's, it's like an intimate relational knowledge, right? There's a, there's a lot packed into the, the phrase, like the father knows the son, okay? And then here in verse 16, let's read that again. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So, there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, what we see here as well, I think in verse 16, is that these people are not sheep because they have already come to Christ. He is telling these people, well, in particular, the disciples here, I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold, but they haven't come yet. So, in Jesus' mind, he already has them. Something has or will happen that will collect the rest of these sheep, right? We see that in Jesus' mind there's no doubt about who is going to receive the benefits of his work in his ministry, okay? So, point two. Well, first, basically just what I want you to know is that what Jesus is saying in John is that he came for them. There, there is a particular people on his mind that he, that he came for, that he came to collect. And then point two. The doctrine of original sin necessitates particular redemption. So, here is a massive passage and... I think it is so very important, and I'll make some highlights. So it could be helpful to you as we read through this, if you will underline the things that I'm telling you, because it will help you see in this huge portion of Scripture some very important things here. So here in Romans 5, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, underline that, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's going to be Jesus. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, underline that, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Underline that. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, underline that, Through that one man, underline the rest of this, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 15 here. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so as we look at this Romans passage here, one of the important pieces of biblical theology that I want you to see is that if Christ is the second Adam, and he is because that's what Paul has just told us, that means there is a correlation between the work of Adam the first and Adam the second. So if Jesus is a type of the first Adam, then immediately we're supposed to draw a link between the two in one way or another. So, so what is that link? I think it has to do with their work of imputation. So imputation is just something that is applied to something else. So if I impute to you my wallet, I have given you my wallet, which you did not have before. It's just something that has been given to you, and now it is your wallet. Though it was mine, I have given it to you, and you are now the owner of this wallet. That is, that is imputation. So what I think Paul is doing here is he's drawing a a connection between their imputation. And the reason I think that is so is because he's talking about sin and he's talking about grace. These two things that we have inherited from these two people, okay? Here's what he says. Adam's sin imputes condemnation to us. So to all mankind, because Adam is our federal head, he is the one who stands over all of creation, and Eve is our federal mother, because of their sin, they have imputed condemnation to all of us. Because of their sin, so because they sin, we are born into sin and we sin. Right? That that was a part of uh, Romans 9 when we talked about it. Then it was talking about Adam's sin, which has condemned us, and then he says, "Because all have sinned." Right? So there's there's that. But if Adam's sin imputes condemnation, then what he's saying is that Christ's death imputes justification. So there's grace, there's mercy, there's salvation. These are all things that are imputed to us because of Christ's work for us. We have done nothing for this, and yet it is given to us. But look at verse 8, because I, I want you to see this as well. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there is something a little different about the way in which Christ imputes righteousness to us. While Adam was able to just give us a free gift, thank you, Adam and Eve, what Christ did was he gave us a free gift and yet there was a double imputation. Do you know what that is? His righteousness was imputed or given to us and what was imputed to him? Our sin. So again, there, there's, this, there's this transaction that is taking place on the cross. There is, there is imputation of righteousness where there is imputation of sin. I think that's one of the beautiful things about reading Isaiah 53 in particular is that Isaiah is saying, on the cross, Christ was crushed for what was yours, for your transgressions. And so I think that that's a part of what Paul is talking about here in Romans. But then as we look at the 1 Corinthians um, passage, we see that an assurance is made. And I think that this is such a great passage because we end up having to ask the question, is this proof that we're wrong? because the word all is used, right? There's for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There does seem to be a question of wait. He just said all die in Adam, all live in Christ. So what's what's happening here? Well, I think this is actually an assurance to the contrary. What he's saying is that in Adam, right? Make make sure that you see that. For as in Adam, those who are in him those who are his sons and daughters, those whom he has imputed his sin to, those die. But he also says in the same way, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what does he mean? Those who are in Christ, those who have received this imputation, they receive life. Now, I think what we have to say here is this either teaches universalism or it does not. So if it means that all died and all will be saved. We, we have to say, okay, is that saying that everyone is actually saved in the end? Is, is God not going to hold anyone accountable? Has Christ died for everyone and now everyone will live and reign with Christ in heaven forever? I think as Protestant evangelicals, we have to say, absolutely not. So that's, that's one point I think everyone can agree on. It can't mean that. That's not what that can mean. I think the best understanding of this all is positional and effectual. I, I think that's the case mainly because of what we see in Adam. We have all been birthed from Adam and Eve. They, they have imputed effectually something to us. And that means, I think, because Christ is the second Adam, he imputes something that is also effectual, like, like something that is sure, something that you will receive, not at a later point, but at the cross of Jesus Christ. I think it's his work that we are to be focused on and nothing else. That's what I think is happening here in these two verses. So let's do a little bit of a lightning round. The concepts scripture uses regarding Christ's death make particular redemption, in my mind, unavoidable. And I used unavoidable because I think it is true. So again, we're asking the question, did Christ's death actually accomplish these things for us, Or make them possible if received by faith? That's what we have to ask as we view these things. So, number or point A ransom, the the use of the word ransom or the concept of ransom. So, these three verses here 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Revelation 5, 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you were ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what I want us to understand is that this understanding or this concept of ransom, and we all know what a ransom is, right? You all have seen a movie, Probably at some point in your life where there was a ransom that needed to be paid so that something could be bought back. Well, a true ransom is actually freedom upon payment. No one would actually look, even in a movie, and say, okay, the FBI, they paid a ransom for this person, but the person wasn't delivered up. We would say that the ransom wasn't honored. It's not a real ransom because a ransom is actually given upon payment. And I think that this word or this concept, as you go through a lot more scriptures than just these, actually refers to a ransom that then produces something. There is a payment that is being made that actually grants freedom. Not the possibility, but actual freedom. Because here's the other thing, a ransom, if paid twice, is not a true ransom. So you can't have Christ dying and ransoming us on the cross by his blood, and then a person who who has been died for by Christ then reject God by not believing him in faith. That doesn't make sense. But then you have someone who then does believe by faith, and it's like, okay, but the person who didn't believe, they're actually also paying the ransom because they go to hell. So the ransom did not actually either work for them, which I think we cannot say that that is true, Not about what Christ has done, or the ransom of what Christ has done was not honored. I think that that's kind of where we're led to, just understanding the concept of ransom and how it's used in the Bible. B, redemption. So Titus 2 here, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this concept of redemption, I think what we see is that Christ gives himself to deliver us right from sin. And what he does is he purchases, purchases for us salvation or, or life, right? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us. I think again, there's a definitive transaction taking place in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? He has done these things not to make these things possible, but to actually accomplish these things. The cross is actually redemption. Not the possibility of it, but it is actual redemption. It is the thing that fulfills all other requirements. Okay, propitiation. See, Romans 3 here, uh, it says, for all have sinned. It's a famous passage. We've all said it probably in VBS. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And then Romans 5 on the back there, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So again, propitiation is simply a way of saying that something has been taken away from someone else and placed on another person. So in this case, the propitiation of Christ simply means that on the cross, the wrath of God was fulfilled in him. It was absorbed by him. So, propitiation is kind of just a way of saying absorbing something. Biblically, it's absorbing the wrath of God for sin. So, I mean, you can read the larger book of Romans, but over and over again, Paul is, I mean, he's just constantly pointing us to the centrality of the cross, like, like what it has done. Okay. So, there is an actual absorbing and an actual satisfying. And again, logically speaking, and go back to Isaiah 53, if Christ is crushed for our sins, I think necessarily it logically means that the wrath of God is then satisfied. So where there is a propitiation of the one who never sinned, who was fully God and fully man, there is an actual fulfilling of God's justice. Not the potential of it, but an actual fulfilling. And Again, going back to unconditional election, we would say that it is for those people whom God has foreordained unto salvation. It actually accomplishes what God has chosen them unto. And then D, reconciliation. Romans 5, 10, and Colossians 1. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what we see is that Jesus' death restores man to God, right? There, there, is a, there is a peace or a harmony that is restored between God and man. Remember what I said when Adam and Eve were cast out and they were separated from him and they are now east of Eden? There, there is an actual physical disconnect between Adam and Eve. Not only have they now inherited all these curses and primarily that of death, they have been cast out from the presence of God and the gate into the garden has now been blocked, right? There's a, there's a separation between them made. What we are told here is that Christ's death is the thing that reconciles that relationship. It's the thing that brings man and God back together. And, and again, it's, it's the cross that actually accomplishes that work. It, it's actual peace and actual harmony. I think that's kind of the point of God's wrath being satisfied in it. And then finally, atonement, which is the, the big one we've been talking about the whole time here. 1 Peter chapter 2.24, he himself bore our sins In his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus' death is the bearing of actual sin and the giving of actual righteousness. The the reason I phrased it that way is because what Peter tells us here is that as as he's talking to this church, he bore our sins in his body that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he says, by his wounds you have been healed. So it is the piercing, it is the death of Christ that actually heals your wounds, right? There is a bearing of actual sin, like sins, real sins are given to him and real righteousness is given to those for whom he died. So point four, particular redemption is seen in that Christ's death actually fulfills the law. I think this is a really important argument here. Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Remember, I had said one thing that didn't change in the Garden of Eden was God's righteous requirement. He still expected his people to be holy. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they were cast out. They did not obey his command. But simply because they disobeyed that command doesn't mean that it changed. That'll be important in just a moment. So what didn't change in the fall was God's command for holiness, and it's later proven true that it didn't change because the people of Israel are given the law. It's really condensed down into the Ten Commandments, right? That's kind of what we know as the law, but there are a bunch of them. Well, that is God's righteous requirement for holiness. That's why there's actually a sacrificial system that is put in place, because my requirement for you is to follow this law perfectly but because you will not be able to, you must make a sacrifice of blood. That's why we end up having the law and the sacrificial system. Those two things must go together because one of them you will not be able to do, okay? So Romans 3.20 is an important verse to consider here. It, it says there that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So as we think about this, as we think about what Paul is saying here about the law of sin, sin and death, and then the law of the Spirit, what we need to understand is that we, all of us, stand condemned simply because the law exists, right? Where there is no law, there is no knowledge of sin. But where there is the law, there is knowledge of sin, and because there is knowledge of sin, there is condemnation for sin. So every single one of us stand under condemnation, actual, real condemnation. But then, as we get to Romans chapter eight, what we see here is that Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. You see that, right? In his death, that need for atonement has now been fulfilled in his sacrifice. So, what that means is that in his death, there is now no condemnation, right? So, Jesus' death is a means of securing not potential, but actual redemption because it's his death. That satisfies the law. Again, I think logically, what we have to say is that if Christ's death satisfies the law and through the law comes condemnation for all of us, then if Christ died generally for everyone, then it is his death that has satisfied the law, then none of us can actually be condemned anymore. There's no grounds. The law has been essentially fulfilled, it has been satisfied in his death. And so, If we want to understand whom Christ died for, the only thing, at least from the perspective of the law that would make sense, is particular redemption. His death actually satisfies and fulfills the law for those whom he dies. And I think if it's not the case, then we at least have to ask the question, okay, then is everyone saved? Okay, so let's look at a few problem texts here, Um, and I call them problem texts not because I think they are real problems in any way in and of themselves— but because they are texts that are used to um, argue against my position. And so I just want to look at them very quickly here, and then we will open it up for some questions. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So what is happening here? I I think that really it's to me very, very clear that this is a reference for all types of people. So I think what Paul is saying here to Timothy is that prayer for salvation, or even prayer and salvation, is non-discriminatory. So you should not walk around saying, I'm not praying for this person or this type of person because they are a Republican or because they are a Democrat. And we should not also say, okay, well, this person can never be saved because they are a Republican or they are a Democrat. Paul's understanding of all here is that these things extend in one way or another to all people. There is no discrimination on your part. So when we preach from this pulpit, we actually ask people to repent and confess faith. We don't look out and be like, okay, here's the gospel call, except you. You look a little off today, right? But we don't view prayer like that either. So I think that the way in which he talks about prayer first and then moves into his desire for all people to be saved simply does mean all types of people, right? This is an all-inclusive thing outside of actual redemption here. And then secondly, um, there are texts that seem to say that atonement is for the whole world. So the other one was all people, and then this is the whole world. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 2. uh, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay, in both of these cases, I think that John is appealing to the expansiveness of God's plan of redemption. So it's not just for Israel. That those are not the only people who will be saved. And again, John's audience is Jewish, and there are no Gentiles that are really considered in this book in any major way. The only one we actually see is a Samaritan, right? And again, that is a huge object lesson of who can actually be saved, right? So the people that you don't think would be saved. So uh, I think what he means in these two cases is that salvation is for all peoples. It's for the whole world. It's not just for you Jews, And again, Paul will argue that later in Galatians 3.28, where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. There's there's neither slave nor free, man nor woman. We are all one in Christ. There are not categories or certain types of people who can be saved. Christ came to redeem the whole world and those you don't even know yet who will exist, right? Like in America. Okay, and then one final verse, John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what did Jesus complete in that moment? I do think it's important to wrestle with what does he mean when he says, it is finished? Is he simply talking about his death? Does he mean, finally, I have died. It's over. This misery is done. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's what it is. Because at one point, he even looks to John and he's like, take care of that woman. Care for my mother. So he's not distressed to the point where he's like, I, just, I can't focus. I just need to die. I mean, he's literally trying to care for his mother in that moment. So I don't, I don't think he's just saying, this, this thing has, has been done, right? He says, it breathes his last, and he says, it is finished. So I think he means us to understand that his death has accomplished the purpose of salvation. For this hour I have come. What, just to die? No, that cannot be it, because you have the rest of the Bible. Death cannot be the thing that's just finished. And in fact, we know that it won't be finished because three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. So it can't just be physical death. There has to be something in that moment upon his last breath that is actually finished. And I think the work of the cross then is not conditioned on the response of faith. I think the cross is redemption. It's not the possibility of that thing. It is redemption. It is the thing that completes God's plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And so when he breathes his last breath, The law is fulfilled. How do we know that? Because the curtain is torn. The Holy of Holies is now accessible to all of those who will be given the Spirit of God.